0: CHAPTER Twenty Three, MEDUSA Catherine watched, transfixed, as the dome of St. Paul's split along black seams and the sections folded outward like petals. Inside, something was rising slowly up a central tower and opening as it rose, an orchid of cold white metal. The grumble of vast hydraulics echoed across the square and shivered through the fabric of the engineerium. Medusa, whispered Bevis Pod, standing behind her in the open doorway. They haven't really been repairing the cathedral at all. They've built Medusa inside St. Paul's. Guildspersons? They turned. An engineer was standing behind them. What are you doing? He snapped. This gantry is off-limits to everyone but L-Division. He stopped, staring at Catherine, and she saw that Bevis was staring too, his dark eyes wide and horrified. For a moment she couldn't imagine what was wrong with him. Then she understood. The rain! She had forgotten about the guild mark he had painted so carefully between her eyebrows, and now it was trickling down her face in thin red rills. "'What in Quirk's name?' the engineer gasped. Kate, run!' shouted Bevis, pushing the engineer aside, and Catherine ran, and heard the man's angry shout behind her as he fell. Then Bevis was with her, grabbing her by the hand, darting left and right down empty corridors until a stairway opened ahead. Down one flight, and then another, and behind them they heard more shouts, and the sudden jarring peal of an alarm bell.' Then they were at the bottom, in a small lobby, somewhere at the rear of the engineerium. There were big glass doors opening onto top tier, and two guildsmen standing guard. "'There's an intruder!' panted Bevis, pointing back the way they had come. "'On the third floor! I think he's armed!' The guildsmen were already startled by the sudden ringing of the alarm bell. They exchanged shocked glances— Then one started up the stairs, dragging a gas pistol from his belt. Bevis and Catherine seized their chance and hurried on. My colleague's been hurt, explained Bevis, pointing at Catherine's red-streaked face. I'm taking her around to the infirmary. The door swung open and spilled them out into the welcome dark. They ran as fast as they could into the shadow of St. Paul's, then stopped and listened. Catherine could hear the heavy throbbing of machinery, and a closer, louder throb that was the beat of her own heart. A man's voice was shouting orders somewhere, and there was a crash of armoured feet coming closer. Beefeaters! she whimpered. They'll want to see our papers. They'll take off my hood. Oh, Bevis, I should never have asked you to get me in there. Run! Leave me! Bevis looked at her and shook his head. He had defied his guild and risked everything to help her, and he wasn't about to abandon her now. "'Oh, Cleo, help us!' breathed Catherine, and something made her glance toward Paternoster Square. There was old Chudley Pomeroy, standing on the Guildhall steps with his arms full of envelopes and folders, staring upward. She had never been so happy to see anyone in her whole life and she ran to him, dragging Bevis pod along with her, and calling softly, Mr. Pomeroy? He looked blankly at them, then gasped in surprise as Catherine pulled the stupid hood off, and he saw her face and her sweat-draggled hair. (laughs) Miss Valentine, what in Quirk's name is happening? Look what those damned interfering engineers have done to St. Paul's! She looked up. The metal orchid was open to its full extent now, casting a deep shadow on the square below. Only it was not an orchid. It was a cowled, flaring thing, like the hood of some enormous cobra, and it was swinging around to point at Panzerstadt by right. Medusa, she said. Who? asked Chudley Pomeroy. A bug siren wailed. "'Oh, please!' she cried, turning to the plump historian. "'They're after us. "'If they catch Bevis, I don't know what will happen to him.' "'Bless him!' "'He did not say, why, or what have you done wrong. "'Just took Catherine by one arm and Bevis Pod by the other, "'and hurried them toward the Guildhall garage, "'where his bug was waiting. "'As the chauffeur helped them into it, "'a squad of beef eaters came clattering past,' but they paid no attention to Pomeroy and his companions. He hid Catherine's coat and hood behind his seat and made Bevis Pod crouch down on the floor of the bug. Then he squeezed himself in beside Catherine on the back seat and said, Let me do the talking, do the talking as the bug went purring out into Paternoster Square. There was a throng of people outside the elevator station gazing up in amazement at the thing that had sprouted from St. Paul's. Beef eaters stopped the bug while a young engineer peered in. "'Pomeroy opened a vent in the glass lid and asked, "'Is there a problem, uh, Guildsman?' "'A break-in at the engineerium, anti-tractionist terrorists.' "'Well, <laughs> don't look at us.' "'laughed Pomeroy. "'I've been working in my office at the Guildhall all evening, "'and Miss Valentine has been kindly helping me to sort out some papers.' "'All the same, sir. I'll have to search your bug.' "'Oh, really?' cried Pomeroy. "'Do we look like terrorists? "'Haven't you got better things to do on the last night of London, "'with a dirty Great Conurbation bearing down on us?' "'I shall complain to the council in the strongest possible terms. "'It's outrageous!' "'The man looked uncertain, then nodded, "'and stepped aside to let Pomeroy's chauffeur steer the bug "'into a waiting freight elevator. "'As the doors closed behind it, Pomeroy let out a sigh of relief. "'Those damned engineers! "'Oh, no offence, apprentice pod! "'None taken!' said Bevis's muffled voice from somewhere below. Thank you, whispered Catherine. Oh thank you for helping us. Oh don't mention it <laughs> chuckled Pomeroy. I'm always happy to do anything that upsets Crome and his lackeys. Thousands of years old that cathedral, and they go and turn it into a into whatever they've turned it into, without so much as a by your leave. He looked nervously at Catherine, and saw that she wasn't really listening. Gently, he asked, "'But whatever have you done to stir them up, Miss Valentine? You don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but if you and your friend are in trouble, and if there's anything an old coot like me can do—' Catherine felt helpless tears prickling her eyes. "'Please,' she whispered, "'could you just take us home?' "'Of course.' They sat in awkward silence as the bug drove through the streets of Tier 1 into the park. The darkness was full of people running and shouting, pointing up toward the cathedral. But there were other runners too, engineer security men leading squads of beef eaters. When the bug stopped outside Cleo House, Pomeroy climbed out to walk Catherine to the door. She whispered a heartfelt goodbye to Bevis and followed him. "'Could you take Apprentice Pod to an elevator station?' she asked. "'He needs to get back to the gut.' Pomeroy looked worried. "'I don't know, Miss Valentine,' he sighed. "'You've seen how het up the engineers are. If I do them, they'll have all their factories and dormitory blocks locked down tight by now, and security checks in progress. They may already have worked out that he's missing.' along with two coats and hoods. You mean he can't go back? Catherine felt dizzy at the thought of what she had done to poor Pod. Not ever? Pomeroy nodded. Then I'll keep him with me at Cleo House, Catherine decided. He's not a stray cat, my dear. But when Father gets home, he'll be able to sort everything out, won't he? "'Explain to the Lord Mayor that it was nothing to do with Bevis.' "'It's possible,' agreed Pomeroy. "'Your father is very close to the Guild of Engineers—a damn sight too close, some people say. But I don't think Cleo House is the place to keep your friend. I'll take him down to the museum. There's plenty of room for him there, and the engineers won't be able to search for him without giving us warning first. Would you really do that? asked Catherine, afraid that she was dragging yet another innocent person into the trouble she had created. But after all, it would only be for a few days, until Father came home. Then everything would be all right. Oh, thank you, she said happily, standing on tiptoe to kiss Pomeroy's cheek. Thank you. Pomeroy blushed and beamed at her, and started to say something else, but although his mouth moved, She could not hear the words. Her head was filled with a strange sound, a whining roar that grew louder and louder until she realised that it wasn't inside her at all, but pounding down from somewhere overhead. Look! shouted the historian, pointing upward. Her fear had made her forget St. Paul's. Now, looking up at Top tier, she saw the cobra hood of Medusa start to crackle with violet lightning. The hair on her arms and the back of her neck prickled, and when she reached for Pomeroy's hand, pale sparks jumped between the tips of her fingers and his robes. "'Mr. Pomeroy!' she shouted. "'What's happening?' "'Great quirk!' the historian cried. What have those fools awoken now? Ghostly spheres of light detached themselves from the glowing machine and drifted down over Circle Park like fire balloons. Lightning danced around the spires of the guild hall. The rushing, whining roar grew louder and louder, higher and higher, until even with her hands clapped over her ears, Catherine felt she could not bear a moment more of it. Then, quite suddenly, a stream of incandescent energy burst from the cobra's hood and stretched northward, a snarling, spitting, cat tails lashing out to lick the upper works of Panzerstadt Bayreuth. The night split apart and went rushing away to hide in the corners of the sky. For a second, Catherine saw the tears of the distant conurbation limbed in fire, and then it was gone. A pulse of brightness lifted from the earth, blinding white, then red, a pillar of fire rushing up in silence into the sky, and across the flame-lit snow, the sound wave came rolling, a low, long-drawn-out boom, as if a great door had slammed shut somewhere in the depths of the earth. The beam snapped off, plunging Circle Park into sudden darkness, and in the silence she heard Dog howling madly inside the house. Great quirk, Pomeroy whispered. All those poor people. No, Catherine heard herself say. Oh no, no, no. She started to run across the garden staring toward the lightning-flecked cloud that wreathed the wreckage of the conurbation. From Circle Park and all the observation platforms came the sound of wordless voices, and she thought at first that they were crying out in horror the way she wanted to. But no, they were cheering, cheering, cheering. Part Two Chapter 24 An Agent of the League. The strange light in the north had died away, and the long thunderclap had spent itself, echoing and re echoing from the walls of the old volcano. Mastering their panicked horses, the men of the Black Island came on along the margins of the bog amid a drum roll of galloping hoofs and the torn silk sound of wind blown torches. Tom raised his hands and shouted, We're friends, not pirates, travellers, from London! But the horsemen were in no mood to listen, even the few who understood. They had been hunting survivors from the sunken suburb all day, they had seen what Peavey's pirates had done in the fishing villages along the western shore, and now they shouted to one another in their own language and galloped closer, raising their bows. A grey feathered arrow thudded into the ground at Tom's feet, "'making him stumble backward. "'We're friends!' he shouted again. "'The leading man drew his sword, "'but another rider spurred in front of him, "'shouting something in the island tongue, "'then in anglish. "'I want them alive!' "'It was Anna Fang. "'She reined in her horse, "'swung herself down from the saddle, "'and ran toward Tom and Hester, "'her coat flapping against the firelight like a red flag. She wore a sword in a long scabbard on her back and on her breast Tom saw a bronze badge in the shape of a broken wheel, the symbol of the Anti-Traction League. Tom! Hester! She hugged them one by one, smiling her sweetest smile. I thought you were dead. I sent Lindstrom and Yasmina to look for you the morning after the fight at Airhaven. They found your balloon wrecked in those horrible marshes and said you must be dead, dead. I wanted to search for your poor bodies, but the jenny had been damaged, and I was so busy helping guide the town down to the repair yard here. But we said prayers for you, and made funeral sacrifices to the gods of the sky. Do you think we could ask them for a refund? Tom kept quiet. His chest was hurting, so that he could hardly breathe, let alone speak. Anyway, the badge on the aviatrix's coat told him that PV's stories had been true. She was an agent of the League. He wasn't charmed any more by her kindness and her tinkling laugh. She shouted something over her shoulder to the waiting riders, and a couple jumped down from their ponies and led them forward, staring in wonder at Shrike's corpse. "'I have to leave you for a while,' she explained. I'm taking the jenny north to see what devilry has lit up the sky. The islanders will look after you. Can you ride? Tom had never even seen a horse before, let alone sat on one, but he was so dazed with pain and shock that he could not protest as they heaved him up into the saddle of a shaggy little pony and started to lead it downhill. He looked back for Hester and saw her scowling at him, hunched in the saddle of a second pony. Then the knot of riders closed around her, and he lost sight of her in the narrow, crowded streets of the Caravanserai, where whole families were standing outside their homes to stare at the northern sky, and dust and litter whirled between the buildings as Airhaven dipped overhead, trying out its rotors one by one. There was a small stone house where someone found a seat for him and a man in black robes and a big white turban who examined his bruised chest broken he said cheerfully i am ibrahim nazgul physician four of your ribs are quite smashed up tom nodded giddy with the pain and shock but starting to feel lucky that he was still alive and glad that these people weren't the anti-tractionist savages he had been expecting Dr. Nazgul wound bandages around his chest and his wife brought a steaming bowl of mutton stew and helped Tom eat, spooning it into his mouth. Lantern light lapped at the corners of the room and in the doorway the doctor's children stood staring at Tom with huge dark eyes. You are a hero, explained the doctor. They say you fought with an iron gin who would have killed us all. Tom blinked sleepily at him. He had almost forgotten the squalid little battle at the edge of the bog. The details were fading quickly, like a dream. I killed Shrike, he thought. All right, so he was dead already, technically, but he was still a person. He had hopes, and plans, and dreams, and I put a stop to them all. He didn't feel like a hero. He felt like a murderer, and the feeling of guilt and shame stayed with him, staining his dreams as his head drooped over the bowl of stew, and he slipped away into sleep. Then he was in another room, in a soft bed, and there was a blustery blue-and-white sky beyond the window and a patch of sunlight coming and going on the lime-washed wall. "'How are you feeling, stalker-killer?' a voice asked. Miss Fang stood over him, watching him with the gentle smile of an angel in an old picture. Tom said, "'Everything hurts. Well enough to travel? The Jenny Hanover is waiting, and I would like to be away before sundown. You can eat once we're airborne. I've made Toad-in-the-hole with real Toad.' "'Where's Hester?' Tom asked groggily. "'Oh, she's coming too?' he sat up. "'wincing at the sharp pain in his chest "'and the memory of all that had happened. "'I'm not going anywhere with you,' he said. "'The aviatrix laughed, as if she thought he was joking, "'then realised he wasn't, "'and sat down on the bed, looking concerned. "'Tom, have I done something to upset you?' "'You work for the League,' he said angrily. "'You're a spy, no better than Valentine!' You only helped us because you hoped we'd tell you things about London. Miss Fang's smile faded entirely. Tom, she said gently, I helped you because I like you. And if you had seen your family slave to death aboard a ruthless city, might you not have decided to help the League in its fight against municipal Darwinism? She reached out to brush the tousled hair away from his forehead, and Tom remembered something he had forgotten, a time when he was little and very ill, and his mother had sat with him like this. But the badge of the League was still on Miss Fang's breast, and the wound of Valentine's betrayal was still raw. He would not let himself be tricked by smiles and kindness again. You kill people, he said, pushing her hand away. "'You sank Marseille.' "'If I had not, it would have attacked the hundred islands, "'killing or enslaving hundreds more people than I drowned with my little bomb.' "'And you strangled the the raisin of somewhere or other?' (laughs) "'The Sultana of Palau Pinang?' "'The smile came flickering back. "'I didn't strangle her. "'What a horrible suggestion.' I simply broke her neck. She let amphibious raft cities refuel at her island, so she had to be disposed of. Tom didn't see that it was anything to smile about. He remembered Raylan's men slumped in the shadows of the air-key at Staines, and Miss Fang telling him they were just unconscious. I may be no better than Valentine, she went on, but there is a difference between us valentine tried to kill you and i want to keep you alive so will you come with me where to asked tom suspiciously to shan guo she replied i'm willing to bet that what lit up the sky last night had something to do with the thing valentine took from hester's mother and i have learned that london is heading straight for the shield wall Tom was amazed. Could the Lord Mayor really have found a way to breach the League's borders? If so, it was the best news for years. As for going to Shanguo, that was the heart of the Anti-Traction League, the last place in the world a decent Londoner should go. I won't do anything to help you harm London, he told her. It's still my home. Of course, she replied. But if the wall is about to be attacked, don't you think the people who live behind it deserve a chance to get away? I am going to warn them of their danger, and I want Hester to come with me and tell her side of the story. And Hester will only go if you come, too. Tom laughed and found that it hurt. (laughs) I don't think so, he said. Hester hates me. Nonsense! "'giggled Miss Fang. "'She likes you very much. "'Did she not spend half the night "'telling me how kind you have been "'and how wonderfully brave you were "'killing that machine man?' "'Did she?' "'Tom blushed, feeling suddenly proud. "'He didn't think he would ever get used to Hester Shaw "'and her soaring moods. "'Nevertheless, she was the closest thing he had "'to a friend in this huge, confusing world.' and he still remembered how she had pleaded with Shrike for his life. Wherever she was going, he had to go too, even into the savage heartland of the League, even to Shan Guo. All right, he said. I'll come. Chapter 25 The Historians It is raining on London. Steady rain out of the low, bruised sky, raining hard enough to wash away the snow and churn the mud beneath the city's tracks into thick yellow slurry, but not to quench the fires of Panzerstadt Bayreuth, which are still blazing like a titan's pyre away in the northwest. Magnus Chrome stands on the windswept roof of the Engineerium and watches the rising smoke. An apprentice holds an umbrella over him, and behind her wait six tall, motionless figures, dressed in black versions of the Guild's rubber coats. The terrorists who breached the engineerium last night have still not been caught, and security is being strengthened. From now on the Lord Mayor will go nowhere without his new bodyguard. The first batch of Dr. Twix's stalkers. A guild spottership swings overhead and touches down. Dr. Vambrace, the engineer's security chief, steps out and comes hurrying to where the Lord Mayor waits, his rubber coat flapping thickly in the wind. "'Well, Doctor?' Chrome asks eagerly. "'What did you see? Were you able to land?' Vambrace shakes his head. "'Fires are still burning all over the wreck.' But we circled as low as we dared and took photographs. The upper tiers have melted and collapsed onto the lower and it looks as if all the boilers and fuel stores exploded at the first touch of our energy beam. Chrome nods. Were there any survivors? A few signs of life between the tiers, but otherwise. The security man's eyes go wide behind his thick glasses, looking like a pair of jellyfish in an aquarium. His department is always keen to find new and inventive ways to kill people, and he is still excited at the thought of the dry, charred shapes he saw littering the streets and squares of Panzerstadt by Reut, many of them still standing upright, flashed into clinker statues by the gaze of Medusa. "'Do you intend to turn back and devour the wreck, Lord Mayor?' he asks after a moment. "'The fires will burn themselves out in a day or two. "'Absolutely not,' snaps Chrome. "'We must press on toward the shield wall.' "'The people will not like that,' Brace warns. "'They have had their victory. "'Now they want the spoils, "'the scrap metal and spare parts from that conurbation. "'I have not brought London all this way "'for scrap metal and spare parts!' "'Chrome interrupts. "'He stands at the handrail on the roof's rim "'and stares east. "'He can already see the white summits "'of high mountains on the horizon, "'like a row of pearly teeth. "'We must press on.' A few more days will bring us within range of the shield wall. I have announced a public holiday and a reception at the Guildhall to mark the great event. Think of it, Vambrace, a whole new hunting ground. But the League knows we are coming now, warns Brace. They will try to stop us. Crome's eyes are bright and cold, gazing at the future. He says, "'Valentine has his orders. He will deal with the League.' And so London kept moving, dragging itself eastward as the smoke of the dead conurbation towered up into the sky behind, and Catherine walked to the elevator stations through the wet wreckage of last night's celebrations. Broken Chinese lanterns blew across the shuddering deck-plates, and men in the red livery of the recycling department wheeled bins around, gathering up abandoned party hats and soggy banners, whose messages were still dimly to be read. We heart Magnus Chrome" and long live London! Dog played chase with a billowing paper chain, but Catherine called him sharply to heel. This was no time for games. At least in the museum there were no banners and no paper chains. The Historians' Guild had never been as quick as the rest of London to welcome new inventions from the engineers, and they made no exception for Medusa. In the dusty shadows of the exhibition galleries there was a decent silence, as befitted the morning after the death of a whole city. The sounds of the streets outside seemed muffled, as if thick, soft curtains of time hung in the dim air between the display cabinets. The quietness helped Catherine to gather her thoughts, and by the time she reached Chudley Pomeroy's office, she was quite clear about what she had to say. She had not yet told Mr. Pomeroy what she had learned in the engineerium, but he had seen how shaken she was when he left her at Cleo House the night before. He did not seem surprised to find her and Dog at his door. Mr. Pomeroy, she whispered, I have to talk to you. Is Bevis here? Is he all right? Uh, Of course, he said at once. Uh, Come in. Bevis Pod was waiting for her in the little teak-panelled office, dressed in borrowed historian's robes, his pale skull looking as fragile as an eggshell in the dim yellow glow of the museum lamps. She wanted to run to him and hold him and apologise for what she had led him into, but crammed in around him were about a dozen historians, some perching on the arms of chairs and the corners of Pomeroy's desk. They all looked up guiltily at Catherine, and she looked back at them with a sudden, horrible fear that Pomeroy had betrayed her. Uh, "'Don't worry,' said Pomeroy kindly. "'If Pod's to be a guest of the museum, "'I thought my fellow historians should be introduced to him.' "'None of us are friends of the Lord Mayor. "'We have agreed that Apprentice Pod can stay as long as necessary.' "'The historians made a space for her next to Bevis. "'Are you all right?' she asked him, "'and was relieved when he managed a nervous smile. "'Not bad,' he whispered. "'It's strange here. "'All this wood everywhere, and old stuff. "'But the historians are very kind.' "'Catherine looked around the room at them. She knew many of them by sight doctor Arkangarth, doctor Karuna, Professor Pewtertide, young Miss Potts, Norman Nancaro from Prints and Paintings, and Miss Plim, who was sniffling into her hanky. We've been talking about the destruction of Panzerstadt by Reut, said Pomeroy, pressing a hot mug of cocoa into her hands. This horrible Medusa device. Everybody else seems to think it's wonderful said Catherine bitterly. I could hear them laughing and shouting good old chrome half the night. I know they're relieved that we didn't get eaten, but, well, I don't think blowing up another city is anything to be happy about. It's a disaster, agreed old Dr. Arkengarth, wringing his bony hands. The vibrations from that vile machine played havoc with my ceramics. Oh, bother your ceramics, Arkengarth! "'snapped Pomeroy, who could see how upset Catherine was. "'What about Panzerstadt by Reut, burned to a cinder?' "'That's what comes of the engineer's obsession with old tech,' said Professor Pewtertide. "'Countless centuries of history to learn from, "'and all they're interested in is a few ancient machines.' "'And what did the ancients ever achieve with their devices anyway?' whined Arkangarth. "'They just made a horrible mess of their world and then blew themselves up!' The others nodded dolefully. "'There was a great museum in Panzerstadt by right, said Dr. Karuna. "'I believe they had some wonderful paintings,' agreed Nancaro. "'Unique examples of thirteenth-century cabinet-making,' wailed Miss Plym, "'and collapsed in tears on Arkengarth's knobbly shoulder. "'You must excuse poor Myra. Catherine,' whispered Pomeroy. "'She had terrible news this morning. "'Chrome has ordered that our furniture collection "'be broken up to feed the furnaces. "'It's the fuel shortage, you see, "'a result of this mad journey east.' "'Catherine couldn't have cared less about furniture "'or ceramics at that moment.' but she felt glad that she was not the only one in London appalled by what the Lord Mayor had unleashed. She took a deep breath, then quickly explained what she and Bevis had heard in the engineerium about Medusa and the next step in Crome's great plan, the attack on the shield wall. "'But that's terrible!' they whispered when she had finished. Shanguo is a great and ancient culture, "'anti-traction league or no anti-traction league. Batmunk Gompa can't be blown up. "'Think of all those temples. Uh, "'Ceramics, prayer wheels, silk paintings, furniture. "'Think of the people,' said Catherine angrily. "'We must do something. Uh, "'Yes, yes,' they agreed.' and then all looked sheepishly at her. After twenty years of Crome's rule, they had no idea how to stand up to the Guild of Engineers. But what can we do? asked Pomeroy at last. Tell people what is happening, urged Catherine. You're acting head historian. Call a meeting of the Council. Make them see how wrong it is. Pomeroy shook his head. They won't listen, Miss Valentine. You heard the cheering last night. But that was only because panzerstadt Bayreuth had been going to eat us. When they learn that Crome plans to turn his weapon on yet another city, they'll just cheer all the louder, sighed Pomeroy. He has packed the other guilds with his allies anyway, observed Dr. Karuna. All the great old guildsmen are gone. "'Dead or retired or arrested on his orders. "'Even our own apprentices are as besotted with old tech as the engineers, "'especially since Chrome foisted his man Valentine on us as head historian. "'Oh, I mean no offence, Miss Catherine.' "'Father isn't Chrome's man,' said Catherine angrily. "'I'm sure he's not.' "'If he knew what Crome was planning, he would never have helped him. "'That's probably why he was packed off on this reconnaissance mission, "'to get him out of the way. "'When he gets home and finds out, he'll do something to stop it. "'You see, it was he who found Medusa in the first place. "'He would be horrified to think of it killing all those people. "'He will want to make amends, I'm sure he will.' "'She spoke so passionately that some of the historians believed her even the ones like Dr. Karuna, who had been passed over for promotion when Crome put Valentine in charge of their guild. As for Bevis pod, he watched her with shining eyes, filled with a feeling that he couldn't even name, something that they had never taught him about in the learning labs. It made him shiver all over. Pomeroy was the first to speak. I hope you're right, Miss Valentine, he said. "'Because he is the only man who can hope to challenge the Lord Mayor, "'we must wait for his return. "'But in the meantime, we have agreed to keep Mr. Pod safe here at the museum. "'He can sleep up in the old transport gallery "'and help Dr. Nancaro catalogue the art collection, "'and if the engineers come hunting for him, we'll find a hiding place.' "'It isn't much of a blow against chrome, I know. "'But please understand, Catherine, we are old and frightened, "'and there really is nothing more that we can do.' Chapter 26 Batmunk Gomper The world was changing. That was nothing new, of course. The first thing an apprentice historian learned— was that the world was always changing. But now it was changing so fast that you could actually see it happening. Looking down from the flight deck of the Jenny Hanover, Tom saw the wide plains of the eastern hunting ground speckled with speeding towns, spurred into flight by whatever it was that had bruised the northern sky, heading away from it as fast as their tracks or wheels could carry them, too preoccupied to try and catch one another. Medusa, he heard Miss Fang whisper to herself, staring toward the far-off, flame-flecked smoke. What is a Medusa? asked Hester. You know something, don't you? About what my mum and dad were killed for. I'm afraid not, the aviatrix replied. I wish I did, but I heard their name once. Six years ago, another League agent managed to get into London, posing as a crewman on a licensed airship. He had heard something that must have intrigued him, but we never learned what it was. The League had only one message from him, just two words Beware Medusa. The engineers caught him and killed him. How do you know? asked Tom. "'Because they sent us back his head,' said Miss Fang. "'Cash on delivery.' "'That evening she set the Jenny Hanover down "'on one of the fleeing towns, "'a respectable four-decker called Peripatetiapolis "'that was steering south to lair "'in the mountains beyond the Sea of Kazak. "'At the air harbour there "'they heard more news of what had happened "'to Panzerstadt Bayreuth. "'I saw it,' said an aviator. "'I was a hundred miles away, but I still saw it, "'a tongue of fire reaching out from London's top tier "'and bringing death to everything it touched. "'London's dug up something from the Sixty-Minute War,' "'a freelance archaeologist told them. "'The old American empire was quite insane toward the end. "'I've heard stories about terrible weapons.' quantum energy beams that drew their power from places outside the real universe. "'Who'll dare defy them now, when Magnus Crome has the power to burn any city that disobeys him?' asked a panic-stricken peripatetiopolitan merchant. "'Come here and let us eat you, London will tell us, and we will have to go. It's the end of civilization as we know it, again!' But one good thing had come out of it. The people of Peripatetiapolis were suddenly quite glad to accept Tom's London money. On an impulse, he bought a red silk shawl to replace the scarf that Hester had lost on that long-ago night when he chased her through the gut. For me, she said incredulously when he gave it to her. She couldn't remember anyone ever giving her a gift before. She had not spoken to him much since they left the Black Island, ashamed of her outburst the night before. But now she said, Thank you, and I suppose I should thank you for saving my life, too. Though I don't know why you keep bothering. I knew you didn't really want to end up as a stalker, Tom told her. Oh, I did, she said. It would make things so much easier. But you did the right thing. She looked away from him, embarrassed, staring down at the shawl in her hands. "'I try to be nice,' she said. "'Nobody's ever made me feel they like me before, the way you do. "'So I try to be kind and smiley, like you want me to be, "'but then I catch sight of my reflection, or I think of him.' and it all goes wrong, and I can only think horrible things, and scream at you, and try and hurt you. I'm sorry. It's all right, said Tom awkwardly. I know. It's okay. He picked up the shawl and tied it carefully around her neck. But as he had expected, she pulled it up at once to hide her mouth and nose. He felt strangely sad. He had grown used to that face and he would miss her lopsided smiles. They flew on before dawn, crossing a range of steep hills like crumpled brown paper. All day the land rose up and up, and soon Tom realised that they were leaving the hunting ground altogether. By evening the Jenny Hanover was flying over landscapes too rugged for most towns to travel. He saw dense forests of pine and rhododendron, with now and then a little static village squatting in its cove of farmland, and once a white settlement perched on a mountain top with roads reaching out from it like the spokes of a wheel. Real roads with carts moving up and down and a bright flutter of prayer flags at the intersections. He watched until they were out of sight. He had heard about roads in his history lessons, but he had never thought he'd see one. Next day, Anna Fang handed out balls of reddish paste to her passengers. "'Powdered betel nut,' she explained, "'mixed with some dried leaves from Nuevo Maya. "'They help at these high altitudes. "'But don't make a habit of chewing them, "'or your teeth will turn as red as mine.' The gritty paste made Tom's mouth tingle, But it cured the faint sense of nausea and lightheadedness that had been growing in him as the airship flew higher and higher, and it also helped to numb the pain of his broken ribs. By now, the Jenny's tiny shadow was flickering over high, snow clad summits, and ahead lay summits still higher, white spires that hung like a mirage above the clouds. Beyond them stretched an even higher range, and then another higher yet. Tom strained his eyes, peering toward the south, in the hope that he might catch a glimpse of old Chomolungma, Everest of the ancients. But storms were brewing in the high Himalayas, and it was wrapped in cloud. On and on they flew, through a black-and-white world of snow and glaciers and the sheer dark rock of young mountains, where Tom or Hester sometimes had to mind the controls while Anna Fang took catnaps in the seat beside them, afraid to risk leaving her flight deck. And still they climbed, until at last they were skimming over the low buttresses of great Zan Shan, tallest of the earth's new mountains, whose snow-capped crown jutted into the endless cold above the sky. After that, the peaks were lower, white and lovely, with sometimes a green veil between— "'where huge herds of animals scattered and wheeled "'at the sound of the airship's engines. "'These were the mountains of heaven, "'and they swept away toward the north and east "'and sank down in the far distance "'to steppe and tiger "'and the glitter of impassable swamps. "'This is Shanguo of the many horses,' "'Anna Fang told Tom and Hester. "'I had hoped to retire here,' when my work for the League was done. Now, I suppose, it may all be eaten by London, our fortresses blasted by Medusa, and our settlements devoured, the green hills split open and made to give up their minerals, the horses extinct, just like the rest of the world. Tom didn't think it was such a bad idea, because it was only natural that traction cities should eventually spread right across the globe. But he couldn't help liking Miss Fang, even if she was a spy and an anti-tractionist. And to comfort her, he said, "'However powerful Medusa is, "'it will take years for London to gnaw its way "'through these great big mountains.' "'It won't have to,' she replied. "'Look!' He looked where she pointed, and saw a break in the mountain chain ahead, a broad pass that a city could have crawled along, except that stretching across it, so vast that it seemed at first glance just another spur of the mountains, was the shield wall. It was like a wall of night, black, black, built from huge blocks of volcanic stone, armoured with the rusting deck-plates of cities that had dared to challenge it and been destroyed by the hundreds of rocket-batteries on its western face. On its snow-clad summit, Four thousand feet above the valley floor, the banner of the broken wheel snapped and raced in the wind, and the sunlight gleamed on armoured gun emplacements and the steel helmets of the League's soldiers. "'If only it were as strong as it looks!' sighed the aviatrix, bringing the Jenny Hanover down toward it in a long sweeping curve. A small flying machine, little more than a motorised kite, came soaring to meet them, and she held a brief radio conversation with its pilot. It circled the jenny once, and then whirred ahead, guiding the newcomer over the top of the shield wall. Tom looked down at broad battlements, and the faces of soldiers gazing upward, yellow, brown, black, white, faces from every part of the world where barbarian statics still held out against municipal Darwinism. Then they were gone. The jenny was sinking down the sheltered eastern side of the wall, and he saw that it was a city, a vertical city, with hundreds of terraces and balconies and windows all carved into the black rock, tier upon tier of shops and barracks and houses with balloons and brightly coloured kites drifting up and down between them like petals. "'Bat Munk Gompa,' announced Miss Fang the City of Eternal Strength, although the people who call it that have never heard of Medusa, of course. It was beautiful. Tom, who had always been taught that static settlements were dingy, squalid, backward places, went to the window and stared, and Hester came and pressed her face to the glass beside him, safe behind her veil and almost girlish. "'Oh!' It's just like the cliffs on Oak Island, where the seabirds nest, she cried. Look, look! Down at the base of the wall, a lake shone azure blue, flecked with the sails of pleasure boats. Tom, we'll go swimming, I'll teach you how. The Jenny Hanover landed among some other merchant ships at a mooring terrace halfway down the wall and Miss Fang led Tom and Hester to a waiting balloon that took them up again, past parks and tea-shops, to the Governor's Palace. The ancient monastery from which Batmunk Gomper took its name, whitewashed and many-windowed, carved out of the steep side of the mountain at the wall's end. Other balloons were converging on the landing deck below the palace gardens, their envelopes bright in the mountain sunlight, and in one of the dangling baskets— Tom saw Captain Cora waving. They met on the landing deck, the young airman touching down just ahead of them and running across to embrace Miss Fang and help her friends out of the skittish gondola. He had flown here from Airhaven the morning after Shrike's attack, and he seemed amazed and happy to see Tom and Hester alive. Turning to the aviatrix, he said, "'The Governor and his officers are eager for your report,' Fung Terrible rumours have reached us about London. It was good to meet a friendly face in this strange new city, and Tom fell into step beside Cora as he led the newcomers up the long stair to the palace entrance. He remembered seeing a trim Achebe 2100 berthed at one of the lower platforms, and asked, Was that your machine we saw at the mooring place? The one with Oxhide outriggers? Cora laughed delightedly. That old air scow! <laughs> no, thank the gods! My M'Kile is a warship, Tom. Every ally of the League supplies a ship to the northern air fleet, and they are stabled together up there. He stopped and pointed, and Tom saw the gleam of bronze doors far up near the summit of the wall, the High Eeries. We'll take you up there one day, Tom. Promised Miss Fang, leading them past the warrior monks who guarded the door and on into a maze of cool stone corridors, the league's great air destroyers are one of the wonders of the skies, but first, Governor Khan must hear Hester's story. Governor Ermene Khan was a gentle old man with the long, mournful face of a kindly sheep. He welcomed them all into his private quarters and gave them tea and honey-cakes in a room whose round windows looked down toward the lake of Batmunk-Nor, gleaming among patchwork farmlands far below. For a thousand years his family had helped to man the shield-wall, and he seemed dazed by the news that all his guns and rockets were suddenly useless. "'No city can pass Batmunk-Gompa,' he kept saying, as the room filled with officers eager to hear the aviatrix's advice. "'My dear Fung Hua, if London dares to approach us, we will destroy it. As soon as it comes in range, (laughs) boom!' "'But that is what I'm trying to tell you,' cried Miss Fang impatiently. "'London doesn't need to come within range of your guns!' "'Chrome will park his city a hundred miles away "'and burn your precious wall to ashes. "'You have heard Hester's story. "'I believe that the machine Valentine stole from her mother "'was a fragment of an ancient weapon. "'And what happened to Panzerstadt by right "'proves that the Guild of Engineers "'have managed to restore it to working order.' "'Yes, yes.' said an artillery officer. "'So you say. But can we really believe that Chrome has found a way to reactivate something that has been buried since the Sixty-Minute War? Perhaps Panzerstadt by was just destroyed by a freak accident.' Uh, "'Yes,' Governor Kahn clutched gratefully at the idea. a "'A meteorite, or some sort of gas leak.' He stroked his long beard. "'reminding Tom of one of the dithery old historians back at the London Museum. "'Perhaps Crome's City will not even come here. Uh, "'Perhaps he has other prey in mind.' "'But his other officers were more ready to believe the Windflower's report. "'She's coming here all right,' said one, an aviatrix from Kerala, "'not much older than Tom.' "'I took a scout ship west the day before yesterday, Hua, she explained with an adoring look at Miss Fang. "'The Barbarian City was less than five hundred miles away, and approaching fast. By tomorrow night Medusa could be within range.' "'And there have been sightings of a black airship in the mountains,' put in Captain Cora. "'The ships sent to intercept it never returned.' My guess is that it was Valentine's thirteenth-floor elevator, sent to spy out our cities so that London can devour them. Valentine. Tom felt a strange mix of pride and fear at the thought of the head historian on the loose here in the very heart of Shanguo. Beside him, Hester tensed at the mention of the explorer's name. He looked at her, but she was staring past him, out through the open windows, toward the mountains, as if she half expected to see the thirteenth-floor elevator go flying past. "'No city can pass the shield wall,' said Governor Khan, loyal to his ancestors, but he did not sound convinced any more. "'You must launch the air fleet, Governor,' Miss Fang insisted, leaning forward in her seat. "'Bomb London before they can bring Medusa into range.' It's the only way to be sure. No! shouted Tom, springing up so that his chair fell backward with a clatter. He couldn't believe what she had said. You said we were coming here to warn people. You can't attack London. People will get hurt. Innocent people. He was thinking of Catherine, imagining League torpedoes crashing into Clio House and the museum. You promised, he said weakly fung does not make promises to savages, snapped the Caroline girl. But Miss Fang hushed her. We will just hit the gut and tracks, Tom, she said. Then the top tier, where Medusa is housed. We do not seek to harm the innocent. But what else are we to do if a barbarian city chooses to threaten us? London's not a barbarian city, shouted Tom. It's you who are the barbarians. Why shouldn't London eat Batmunk Gomper if it needs to? If you don't like the idea, you should have put your cities on wheels long ago, like civilised people. A few of the League officers were shouting angrily at him to be quiet, and the Carolan girl had drawn her sword, but Miss Fang calmed them with a few words and turned her patient smile to Tom. Perhaps you should leave us, Thomas, she said firmly. I will come and find you later. Tom's eyes stung with stupid tears. He was sorry for these people, of course he was. He could see that they weren't savages, and he didn't really believe any more that they deserved to be eaten. But he couldn't just sit by and listen to them planning to attack his home. He turned to Hester in the hope that she would take his side. But she was lost in her own thoughts her fingers tracing and retracing the scars under her red veil. She felt guilty and stupid, guilty because she had been happy in the air with Tom, and it was wrong to be happy while Valentine was wandering about unpunished. Stupid because when he gave her the shawl, she had started to hope that Tom really liked her, and, thinking of Valentine, made her remember that nobody could like her, Not in that way, not ever. When she saw him looking at her, she just said, "'They can kill everybody in London for all I care, "'so long as they save Valentine for me.' Tom turned his back on her and stalked out of the high chamber, and as the door rolled shut behind him, he heard the Carolyn girl hiss, "'Barbarian!' Alone, he mooched down to the terrace, where the taxi balloons waited, and sat on a stone bench there, feeling angry and betrayed, and thinking of things that he should have said to Miss Fang if only he had thought of them in time. Below him the rooftops and terraces of Batmunk Gompa stretched away into the shadows below the white shoulders of the mountains, and he found himself trying to imagine what it must be like to live here and wake up every day of your life to the same view." Didn't the people of the Shield Wall long for movement and a change of scene? How did they dream without the grumbling vibrations of a city's engines to rock them to sleep? Did they love this place? And suddenly he felt terribly sad that the whole bustling, colourful, ancient city might soon be rubble under London's tracks. He wanted to see more. Going over to the nearest taxi balloon... He made the pilot understand that he was Miss Fang's guest and wanted to go down into the city. The man grinned and started weighting his gondola with stones from a pile that stood nearby, and soon Tom found himself travelling down past the many levels of the city again until he stepped out on a sort of central square where dozens of other taxis were coming and going and stairways branched off across the face of the shield wall, going up toward the high eries and down to the shops and markets of the lower levels. News of Medusa was spreading fast through Gompa, and already a lot of the houses and shops were shuttered, their owners fled to cities farther south. The lower levels were still packed with people, though, and as the sun dipped behind the wall, Tom wandered the crowded bazaars and steep ladderways. There were fortune-tellers' booths at the street corners, and shrines to the sky gods, dusty with the crumbly grey ash of incense sticks. Fierce-looking Uyghur acrobats were performing in the central square, and everywhere he looked he saw soldiers and airmen of the League, blond giants from Spitzbergen, and blue-black warriors from the mountains of the moon, the small dark people of the Andean statics, and people the colour of firelight from jungle strongholds in Laos and Annam. He tried to forget that some of these young men and women might soon be dropping rockets on London, and started to enjoy the flow of faces and the incomprehensible mishmash of languages, and sometimes he heard someone say, "'Tom!' or "'Tomash!' or "'Talma!' as they pointed him out to their friends. The story of his battle with Shrike had spread through the mountains from trading post to trading post, and had been waiting for him here in Batmunk Gompa. He didn't mind. It felt like a different Thomas that they were talking about, someone brave and strong who understood what had to be done and felt no doubts. He was just wondering if he should go back to the governor's palace and find Hester, when he noticed a tall figure climbing a nearby stairway. The man wore a ragged red robe with the hood pulled down over his face and carried a staff in one hand and a pack slung over his shoulder. Tom had already seen dozens of these wandering holy men in Batmunk Gompa, monks in the service of the mountain gods who travelled from city to city through the high passes. Up at the mooring platform Anna Fang had stooped to kiss the feet of one and given six bronze coins for him to bless the Jenny Hanover. But this man was different. Something about him snagged Tom's gaze and would not let it go. He started following the red robe. He followed it through the spice market with its thousand astonishing scents and down the narrow street of weavers where hundreds of baskets swung from low poles outside the shops like hanging nests, brushing against the top of his head as he passed underneath. What was it about the way the man moved?' and that long brown hand clutching the staff. And then, under a lantern in the central square, the monk was stopped by a street girl asking for a blessing, and Tom caught a glimpse of the bearded face inside the hood. He knew that hawk-like nose, and those mariner's eyes. He knew that the amulet hanging between the black brows hid the familiar guild mark of a London historian. It was Valentine. Chapter 27 Dr. Arkengarth Remembers Catherine spent a lot of time in the museum in those final days, as London went roaring toward the mountains. Safe in its dingy maze, she could not hear the burr of the saws, as they felled the trees in Circle Park to feed the engines, or the cheers of the noisy crowds who gathered each day in front of the public goggle screens where the details of Chrome's great plan were being gradually revealed. She could even forget the Guild of Engineers security people who were everywhere now, not just the usual white-coated thugs, but a strange new breed in black coats and hoods, silent, stiff in their movements, with a faint greenish glow behind their tinted visors, Dr. Twix's resurrected men. But if she was honest with herself, it wasn't only the peace and quiet that kept calling her down to the museum. Bevis was there, his borrowed bedding spread out on the floor of the old transport gallery under the dusty hanging shapes of model gliders and flying machines. She needed his company more and more as the city hauled itself eastward. She liked the fact that he was her secret. She liked his soft voice, and the strange laugh that always sounded as if he were trying it on for size, as if he had never had much call for laughter down in the deep gut. She liked the way he looked at her, his dark eyes always lingering on her face, and especially her hair, I've never really known anybody with hair before, he told her one day. In the Guild they use chemicals on us when we're first apprenticed, so it never grows back. Catherine thought about his pale, smooth scalp. She liked that too. It sort of suited him. Was this what falling in love was like? Not something big and amazing that you knew about straight away, like in a story, but a slow thing. "'that crept over you in waves "'until you woke up one day "'and found that you were head over heels "'with someone quite unexpected, "'like an apprentice engineer. "'She wished that father were here "'so she could ask him. "'In the afternoons, "'Bevis would pull on a historian's robe "'and hide his bald head under a cap "'and go down to help Dr. Nancaro, "'who was busy recataloguing "'the museum's huge store "'of paintings and drawings,' and taking photographs in case the Lord Mayor decided to feed those to the furnaces as well. Then Catherine would wander the museum with dog at her heels, hunting for the things that her father had dug up. Washing machines, pieces of computer, the rusty ribcage of a stalker, all had labels that read, Discovered by Mr. T. Valentine, Archaeologist. She could imagine him lifting them gently out of the soil that had guarded them, "'cleaning them, wrapping them in scrim for transport back to London. "'He must have done the same thing with the Medusa fragment "'when he discovered it,' she thought. "'She whispered prayers to Cleo, "'sure that the goddess must be present in these time-soaked halls. "'London needs him. I need him. "'Please send him safely home, and soon.' "'But it was Dog, not Cleo.' who led her into the natural history section that evening. He had glimpsed a display of stuffed animals from the far end of the corridor and gone prowling down to stare at them, a growl bubbling in the back of his throat. Old Dr. Arkengarth, who was passing through the gallery on his way home, backed away nervously, but Kate said, It's all right, Doctor, he's quite safe, and knelt down at Dog's side, looking up at the sharks and dolphins that swung above her, and the great looming shape of the whale, which had been taken off its hawsers and propped against the far wall before the vibrations could bring it crashing down. "'Impressive, isn't it?' said Arkengarth, who was always ready to begin a lecture. "'A a blue whale hunted to extinction in the first half of the twenty-first century, or possibly the the twentieth. The records are unclear.' we wouldn't even know what it looked like if Mrs. Shaw hadn't discovered those fossilised bones. Catherine had been thinking about something else, but the name Shaw made her turn around. The display case Arkangarth was pointing at housed a rack of brownish bones, and propped against a vertebra was a label that said Bones of a Blue Whale, discovered by Mrs. P. Shaw, freelance archaeologist. "'Pandora Shaw,' thought Catherine, "'recalling the name she had seen in the museum catalogue. "'Not Hester. Of course not. "'But just to get Dr. Arkengarth out of lecture mode, "'she said, "'Did you know her, Pandora Shaw?' "'Mrs. Shaw? Yes, yes,' the old man nodded. "'A lovely lady. She was an out-country archaeologist, a friend of your father's. Of course, her name was Ray in those days.' "'Pandora Ray?' Catherine knew that name. "'Then she was father's assistant on the trip to America. I've seen her picture in his book.' "'That's right.' said Arkengarth, frowning slightly the interruption. "'An archaeologist, as I said. She specialised in old tech, of course, but she brought us other things when she found them, like these whale bones. Later she married this Shaw chappie and went to live on some grotty little island in the Western Ocean. Poor girl, a tragedy, terrible, terrible.' "'She died, didn't she?' said Catherine. "'She was murdered!' Arkengarth waggled his eyebrows dramatically. Six or seven years ago we heard it from another archaeologist murdered in her own home and her husband with her dreadful business. I say, my dear, are you all right? You look as if you've seen a ghost.' But Catherine was not all right. In her mind all the pieces of the puzzle were flying together— Pandora Shaw was murdered seven years ago, the same time that father found the machine. Pandora the aviatrix, the archaeologist, the woman who had been with him in America when he found the plans of Medusa, and now a girl called Shaw who wants to kill father. She could hardly manage to force the words out, but at last she asked, Did she have a child? I think she did, I think she did. the old man mused, uh, yes, I remember Mrs. Shaw showing me a picture once when she turned up with some ceramics for my department. Lovely pieces, a decorated vase from the electric empire era, best of its kind in the collection. Do you remember its name? Oh, ah, yes,, uh, let me see e e two seven one nine zero, I believe not the vase, the baby!' Catherine's impatient shout echoed through the gallery and out into the halls beyond, and Dr. Arkengarth looked first startled, then offended. "'Well, really, Miss Valentine, there's no need to snap. How should I remember the child's name? It was fifteen, sixteen years ago.' And I have never liked babies. Nasty creatures leak at both ends and have no respect for ceramics. But I believe this particular one was called Hattie or Holly or Hester, sobbed Catherine, and turned and ran, ran with dog at her heels, ran and ran without knowing where or why, since there was no way that she could outrun the dreadful truth. She knew how father had come by the key to Medusa, and why he had never spoken of it. At last, she knew why poor Hester Shaw had wanted to kill him.